Hey, welcome to this episode of Light 'em Up. We take a deep dive on the criminal justice system, crime scene investigation, and leadership. We enlighten, educate, and empower others with the truth. Like it or not, the truth disturbs, the truth divides, but ultimately, the truth delivers. Hey, I'm your host, Phil Rizzo. I'm the principal owner of Rizzo's Protective Group. We are a high-risk security consulting firm headquartered out of Akron, Ohio, and with offices in the Bronx, New York, and Cerro Alto the Dominican Republic. As we put the ball on the tee to line things up for kickoff, we speak life, health, and prosperity over each and every one of you, and we want to thank you so much for joining us on this special episode of Light 'em Up. Hey, today we have the distinct honor and high privilege to sit and talk with someone whom I consider to be a dear friend of mine and whom I tremendously respect professionally. He currently is a licensed private investigator in the state of Ohio. He is the owner and founder of of True Source Investigations located in North Canton, Ohio, and we know that in a time of uncertainty, facts provide clarity, and we know for sure that that's what True Source Investigations provides for its clientele. He and I have worked side by side, we've trained clients together, and I'm honored to know him and to be considered a friend of his. Today we're talking with Ben Bergeron. To me, I know him as Big Ben. Ben will be taking the witness stand shortly, and Ben served as the former chief criminal investigator for the Summit County Prosecutor's Office for more than six years. Now, our podcast is headquartered in the city of Akron, the county of Summit, where Ben was charged with the oversight, investigation, and prosecution of criminals charged with felony offenses as well as juvenile delinquents for the county. He also oversaw investigations regarding enforcement child support orders and protecting neglected or abused children. Ben has observed a lot in his career. He has served in a highly decorated fashion to the good people of Summit County. Ben has been a dedicated law enforcement park ranger for Summit County, a patrolman on the police department. He has also served as a deputy sheriff for the St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office in Louisiana, as well as the county of Summit. He has served with great distinction honor and merit as a navigator and quartermaster in the U.S. Navy. Welcome to the big show, Ben. Welcome to Light em Up. Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. I have a lot to live up to, that uh, handle you just described. <laughs> well, it's our pleasure, it's our honor, and uh, you are everything and more what I described there. We are, we're just uh, really, really pleased to have you on the show, Ben. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I'm excited to kind of give your listeners an idea of, of what it's like inside and uh, kind of go through the different areas of criminal investigations and procedural processes through the courts and everything in between. Absolutely, absolutely. We look forward to it. And, you know, let's dive right in. How about it, buddy? Let's dive right in. <laughs> let's go, let's go. All right. To kick things off, why don't you tell us about True Source Investigations and as a licensed private investigator in the state of Ohio, for our listeners, what do you do? And, you know, without divulging anyone's identity, can you share with us the clientele you serve and to piggyback on all that and we can unpack it one by one. When did you launch True Source Investigations? Yeah, so I started True Source Investigations and had the company ready registered back in 2014. Um, it was always kind of a thing that I wanted to do as I worked as a criminal investigator in law enforcement. So I got licensed, kind of did my own research on what it would require to get licensed and how that work would transfer from the public sector to the private sector. So in 2018, I decided to break off the public sector and dive into the world of private investigations. I see. I see. Very interesting. I bet there was a tremendous shift, you know, a shift in gears for you. But I, I know for certain you've handled it very well. I, having been an investigator in the past with the state of Ohio, I know the process of becoming an investigator. But for our listeners, with the Ohio Private Investigators and Security Guard Services Commission, which we refer to simply as PISGS, so we'll route the general public to their website for specific details. But briefly, Ben, and in general, how does a person go about becoming a licensed private investigator in the state of Ohio? 
Yeah, sure. So the requirements are not, not terribly hard. Yeah, so in the state of Ohio, it requires a certain amount of experience, requires a certain amount of education, um, and that experience could include criminal investigations, it could include uh, civil investigations, it could include any type of investigations. Um, the state allows for that to be considered when applying for that license. So, you know, this combination of the two will meet that standard, and once that standard is met, they decide that you are eligible to apply for a license. You then go down to Columbus and you take their test and once you pass the test they will certify you they'll send you your license and you're off and running that certification needs to be updated annually okay okay that's uh, fair enough and simple enough it sounds like it's pretty straightforward you know during our lifetime i've read that we accumulate a paper trail of identifying information that stretches about seven miles in length from the womb to the tomb buddy we are exposed and being a private investigator in the state of ohio how can consumers go about protecting themselves from undesirable people crimes and scams in general Wow, that's a that's a pretty tough question. I'll try to answer it to my to the best of my ability here. Um, <laughs> okay. You're right. You're right. The paper trail uh, is very very long. So in my line of work, that's a good thing. You know, during investigations, is you know we're always looking for open source type stuff, government records, that sort of thing. In order to protect yourself, you really got to be conscientious of what you put on the internet. Obviously, everybody knows that once it's on there, you can never take it down. Social media. There's other things that you can do with two step verifications. You know, I actually have a document that I can actually send you that gives step-by-step instructions on how to kind of reduce the amount of information that's out there on you, whether it be social media or public record information. I could certainly share that with you, but I mean, there's all kind of different ways to protect yourself. There's all kind of different ways where your information is vulnerable, but that's sort of something I can I can share with you and your listeners if you wanted to share one of my documents. Sure, sure, absolutely. We could uh, include a link in the liner notes to the podcast episode. I think that would be fantastic. And I know, I know for certain our listeners would be very appreciative of any information. We always try to educate, empower others, like we say. So I think that'd be very helpful, very helpful indeed. Now, as a private investigator, would you consider yourself to be an information broker? And if yes, in general, what type of information do you sell? Um, as far as for information broker, I would say no. Um, an information broker is someone who collects and then sells personal information to others. That's certainly not what I do as a private investigator. Now, the resources that we have access to, such as databases um, that offer some public and government records, um, you know, it's it's mainly to be used for investigative purposes only. So, for example, if I'm conducting an investigation, whether it be a criminal investigation or a background investigation for a client and or an attorney, I can release that report to them. Some information will need to be redacted, obviously, such as personal information, such as social security numbers and that sort of thing. But I don't sell this information to the public. My services are investigative services. In order for me to conduct proper investigations, this is information that I need to access from the database service providers themselves. So I actually am a consumer of it and utilizing it into the investigations conducted. I see. I see. Okay. Hey, let's talk about mystery, adventure, danger, and excitement. I bet no two days are alike as a private investigator. <laughs> can you? Oh man, man, can you're you, right about that. <laughs> can you share with us a little bit about the mystery, adventure, danger, and excitement of being a former criminal investigator and a private investigator today? Well, Phil, I'm going to kind of burst your bubble a little bit with that, my man. Um, <laughs> Investigative work is not as exciting as you see in the movies on TV. Um, a lot of what we do as investigators is we're behind the computer, we're researching documents, we're collecting information. In order to conduct a proper investigation, you got to do your homework first. Um, if that investigation requires going out into the field, they can contact the people. You know that that does occur depending on the type of investigation. But for the most part, it's a fairly boring job if you don't have a passion for doing it. However, for myself, I love it. So you know all aspects. Of it. And I certainly have plenty of experiences and stories and, and incidents that has occurred over the last, what, 15 years, 15 years going now, wow. um, you know, that I can share with your listeners. Sure. Uh, some good, some bad, 
some that I will never admit to. So let's just keep it there. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, as we dig deeper into your role as a private investigator, share with our listeners how you go about conducting a covert surveillance or a stakeout, as it's referred to on so many police shows. Surveillance is even more boring than your traditional criminal investigation. <laughs> so... You know, as far as for the excitement that goes along with that, there, there, there could be some. But in the private sector, when you're conducting surveillance investigations, you want to be a fly on the wall, per se. You don't want to be noticed. You don't want to be observed. You don't want people knowing or thinking you're around or, you know, creeping around the, the places. So the main objective of, of surveillance is to, one, identify your target. Two, document that target. And three, not burn yourself while you're out there. Like I tell most of my clients, surveillance investigations are one of the most challenging for those various factors. You know, it's, it's not... It's not something like you see on TV where you can sit in these open spaces and think that no one's going to see you because I can assure you that once you enter a neighborhood or a certain, let's say, neighborhood type, your presence is very quickly known. So there's all kind of different other methods and, and, and steps you can take in trying to avoid uh, yourself being noticed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I know for certain that private investigators do not have lights and sirens, so they cannot blow through red lights. They can't blow through stop signs. They have to follow the laws. The traffic laws, whereby police en route, they do have their lights and sirens and emergency powers. So, yeah, it is completely different. A lot of times the client doesn't understand that fact. If, say, for example, uh, surveillance, the, the tailing of someone has to break off because you got stuck at a red light or something like that. And I also know what you mean when you say that when you go into a neighborhood, you know, the neighbors are watching. They see everything that happens, you know. Is there anything that you could share with us regarding, you know, not being able able to have the same emergency powers as law enforcement officers do when you're doing an investigation, when you're doing a stakeout? Is there anything you could share with us about how difficult that makes things? Yeah, so there's there's a difference between conducting surveillance when it comes to an active criminal investigations where you're you're acting as a police officer or a criminal investigator with arrest authority. So, you know, one example would be if you're if you're working as a criminal investigator or a police officer, you could be doing surveillance working with the Ohio Fugitive Task force trying to identify and locate uh, violent fugitives. So your surveillance may be in totality part of an investigation and sometimes your presence will be made known uh, whether it be identifying yourself and making an arrest of someone or assisting in that arrest or conducting a search warrant, those type of things. So in the private sector as a private investigator, you're obviously not going to be doing that. So private investigators do not have police authority. We don't have the flashing lights and everything that comes on a patrol vehicle. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have boring vehicles let's say (laughs) so a perfect example is my typical surveillance vehicle is a minivan you know something you'd see every day on the streets something that doesn't pop out you know you want to use a neutral color uh you don't want to have any identifying marks on that vehicle you really don't want anything to be noticed on it you just want to blend in in doing so that that kind of shows the difference in when you're conducting surveillance in the private sector for an attorney whether it be a domestic or custody case where you're identifying a target and that target is suspected of not being a safe parental guardian to that child or has a dependency issue, mm-hmm. etc. Um, so as a private investigator, as mentioned before, you know, you, you're out there, you're collecting information, you're documenting that information, and then you're removing yourself from that area to then use that information as part of your report and submission to the attorneys and or clients. I see, I see. As a highly trained and experienced investigator as you are, can you share with us, are there any tales or visible indications or cues that you can read or pick up on when a person is lying? Not always as a science, but in general, for sure, according to your experience. Yeah, so everybody's different. Every conversation goes differently. There's not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to interview and interrogations, as they call it, law enforcement, mm-hmm. you know, which which I've done thousands of criminal criminal investigative interviews with offenders, with victims, with witnesses. And, you know, each one of them, you're kind of you're kind of tailoring your interview a little differently depending on what information you're trying to extract from that particular person. So a good example is. When I worked in Summit County, I was part of the Domestic Violence Task Force. In that role, I would go to the jail each morning, and offenders that were arrested on domestic violence offenses the previous night or early that morning would be waiting to be arraigned for court that morning. So that would give me an opportunity to get a statement from them and or interview with them. So with the experience of interviewing thousands upon thousands of domestic violence offenders, I was really able to kind of customize and tailor the way I I question offenders and conduct interviews with them. And it really took hundreds of failed
failed attempts at trying to extract information um, through different methods of interviewing. So that really gave me a lot of experience in certain styles of interviewing. And along with that, obviously, the more people you interview, you can tell certain things that people do when they're not being truthful or they're being deceitful. Um, you know, you could use different type of questioning, open-ended question, close-ended questions. You really want to build a base at first, build a little bit of rapport, and basically just have a conversation sure. with people. It's not it's not like you see on TV where you're putting a big light in their face and you throw in your badge on the table. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I've tried that method and uh, <laughs> that didn't work for me either. So my method is just going in very casually and having a conversation and then picking up on different on different ways that person answers questions. You know, when you compare it to the base questions such as name, date of birth, the things that they would not be lying about, and then compare it to some of the ways they answer the questions that that could be that could offer or reveal information that's specific to a crime that could, they could have committed. I see. Okay, that makes sense. And what would be some of the ways that your master's in investigations has helped you to be a more well-rounded investigator, in your opinion? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to receive a master criminal investigator certification through the Ohio Peace Officers Training Academy. Not necessarily because I was great, it's just that I was employed by an office that, that encouraged a lot of training. So, you know, it took years and years and years to go through all of the different courses that specific to a broad range of investigations, domestic violence, forensic investigations, homicide investigations, you know, investigations involving technology, all that sort of thing. So it's more of a broad type certification that gives you knowledge and skill set into almost all aspects of every type of investigation. And you could, you know, I've used that certification specifically for specific type cases or, you know, cases that were even new to me where I'm able to apply certain investigative techniques learned through that certification curriculum to that particular case. So I would say that, you know, it gives me an overall understanding of the resources that available while conducting the investigation, the skill set and the knowledge of how to conduct that investigation based upon the training that that I received and kind of everything in between. So yeah, it it allowed me to be a well-rounded investigator and not one or or even two-dimensional. That makes sense. Oh, it does. It makes perfect sense. That kind of, that specific education can only add to your skills and abilities. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Let's shift gears a little bit, if we could, and head over to talking about your time as Chief Criminal Investigator investigator for the prosecutor's office in Summit County and in assigning, supervising, and participating in the assembling of evidence to assist in gaining a conviction in a court of law or to warrant a grand jury hearing preparatory to a possible indictment, what were some of the specific tasks, processes, and duties that you had to oversee and carry out as the chief criminal investigator? Oh man, you got all day because I can, I can talk all day on this one. <laughs> Well, hit it out of the uh, park. <laughs> yeah, I'll just, I'll just kind of give an overall kind of highlighted outlook on, on that position and that unit as it sits in totality. So, yeah, I was the, a former chief criminal investigator there, so I supervised the criminal investigative unit. I supervised the direct indictment unit, and I supervised the child support enforcement agency investigative unit. So I'll kind of go through the different units and kind of explain how each one works. Um, first one being the criminal investigative unit, which really consisted of myself and my partner. Our roles there were to assist prosecuting attorneys and building cases um, strong enough for prosecutions. So, for example, when a case comes through grand jury and that case is indicted, that jurisdiction then comes to the prosecuting attorney's office. So then our roles would be to review that case, review the police reports, review the evidence, and then determine if more evidence is needed, if the evidence was collected properly, you know, if, if more witnesses need to be identified and interviewed, and then work really alongside the assistant prosecutors in developing that case and building it to the point where a successful prosecution should that crime and the evidence warranted. I see. Um, so the other unit is I supervise the direct indictment unit, which um, if, if you're not familiar, direct indictment can be a little confusing. Uh, one of the other divisions that I supervised was the Child Enforcement Protection Agency investigators, and their role was to assist caseworkers and administrative, the administrative staff there in locating non-paying, non-support-paying parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would assist the caseworkers in identifying their location. They would assist in, at times, felony arrest. In your capacity as the chief criminal investigator as you planned for, directed, and coordinated both the criminal investigations and the direct indictment unit. Can you educate us number one on what is an indictment and then if you would define and explain the process of a direct indictment because to me that sounds like it doesn't involve a grand jury. Uh, No, both of them actually do involve a grand jury and I'll I'll explain the difference between the two. Okay. So an, an indictment is when a person commits an offense that 
raises to the level of a felony crime. So if a police department arrests someone for domestic violence, telecommunication harassment, or murder rape, if it's a felony offense, that jurisdiction or that prosecuting attorney's office could have a direct indictment unit. So going back to what an indictment is, it's when a case is presented in front of a grand jury, and that case has, has the associated felony charges along with it. That case is presented to a grand jury, and that grand jury hears some of the witnesses on the case and reviews the evidence with the grand jury prosecutor, and then they take a vote on whether they feel that the offense occurred and that it rises to the felony level. So that is what an indictment is. Once a person becomes indicted, that means they've been criminally indicted on felony charges. Therefore, that jurisdiction goes to the county prosecuting attorney's office. Okay. On the other side, if someone is charged with a misdemeanor, they are not indicted of that misdemeanor. They are charged and it goes through the lower courts, the municipal courts themselves. A direct indictment is a partnership between police agencies and the prosecuting attorney's office where when someone is charged with a felony, that felony charge could be directly and sent to for direct indictment with the county prosecutor's office versus going through the preliminary hearings at the municipal level. So what that does is it eliminates a lot of the hearings at the lower level and goes directly into felony court, also known as what a comma please, that is prosecuted by the county prosecuting attorney's office. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Very much so. Very much so. so. It, it, it's, it's a complicated question because we've, I've had to draft like proposals and all kinds of stuff for them. And most agencies actually prefer direct indictment because it speeds up the case, you know, ultimately saving the taxpayer money. Okay. Um, because when they have all these extra hearings, it obviously takes more time, costs taxpayers money. So it's, it's a direct streamline from the arresting agency directly to the county prosecuting attorney's office. Okay. If the case is true build and indicted as felony charges. I see. Okay. Got it. Ben, Light 'em Up has established a think before you send campaign for our students, our criminal justice and forensic science students, where we try to educate on the law that sending and receiving naked photos is a crime referred to as sexting. And a person can be found guilty and sentenced to do community service as well as spend time in jail and be ordered to register as a sex offender for actions like this. What can you share, if anything, with our students that are tuning in, or at least better be tuning in, and the general public about what not to do as it relates to the crime of sexting. Well, Phil, my first word of advice is don't do it. Don't do it because when you take an image of yourself and you send it via text, via email, via internet, that image never goes away. It's there forever. And it could be shared with other people. It could be used as blackmail. It could be used as coercion. Um, it could be used just to embarrass someone. And it is a crime. It's it's the distribution of pornography is what, what it relates to. So if, if, for example, if you're 16 and you got a boyfriend or girlfriend and you're sending pictures back and forth to each other, you're sharing pornography amongst one each other. So both parties can be criminally charged for doing that. So I've always told clients, I've always told uh, victims, offenders, you know, just don't do it. Because mm -hmm. once you put it out there, it never goes away. And I think like we previously discussed, that can lead to having to register as a sex offender. And just, you know, if you're not doing it, it saves a whole lot of embarrassment. Like I said, it never goes away. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sound advice. Absolutely. Hey, Ben, share with us what is a temporary restraining order, a TR and what is a personal protective order, a PPO, and what, if anything, is the difference? Yeah, so there's actually four different types of protection orders in Ohio. Okay. You know, the one I think that, that you're kind of referring to is, is a temporary protection order, and it, and it primarily relates to domestic violence victims. So, for example, if a complaint is filed for domestic violence or a primary aggressor is, is arrested and charged, there's an automatic temporary protection order put in place. Now, that order can be effective for, I believe, between five and seven days until a hearing can be had. And once that hearing occurs, then both parties have an opportunity to attend the hearing, state their case, and then the judge will decide if a criminal protection order would be the most appropriate kind of a, a permanent order in place until the case is resolved or results in some type of a conviction. You know, there's also civil court civil court protection orders. Those are specifically associated to, you know, if you're you're living in the same household or you're, you're a family member of the offender, not necessarily the victim, you can get a civil protection order. And that also encompasses offenders that have committed crimes such as, you know, aggravated
aggravated assault, felonious assault, menacing, or any kind of criminal charge where that person feels they're being threatened by the offender, another order could be placed there as well. So um, the temporary protection order goes into place whether the victim wants to or not. It's an automatic thing that is done by the clerk of courts as soon as the charges are filed. I see, I see. Doubling back, how does a person go about obtaining a protection order in a criminal case? Because we have a lot of listeners that they happen to be female between a certain demographic, and I think information like this would be helpful to educate the public on. How does a person go about obtaining a protection order in a criminal case? Yeah, so let me let me first restate what I said earlier. There has to be, in, in regards to a criminal protection order, there has to be a criminal charge or complaint filed on that offender. Yeah. Okay. So that is the one that is, that's why you receive the temporary order first, and then you'll have the hearing, and then um, eventually get to the, to leading up to the criminal protection order itself. The best way I've always told victims to get a protection order is to file a police report. You know, go downtown, file a report. These temporary protection orders are automatically put in place, and that's just the easy way to do it. And once those charges are filed, your name and contact information will be submitted to victim advocates office, um, whether it be with the county or the municipal level. And that victim and advocate services will then contact you and give you the necessary resources and explain the steps to which what is going to occur after those charges are filed and what to expect in the future. Okay, okay, I see, I see. Like, so in Akron or Summit County, perhaps that might be the battered women's shelter, maybe that might help facilitate that process through the court? Yep, that's one of the resources. There, Summit County offers a lot of different resources. You know, victim, victims assistance, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. battered women's shelter, uh, police departments, most law enforcement agencies or government agencies have some form of resource available to the public in regard to protection orders mm-hmm. and or assist in filing one. Yeah, absolutely. So when you accompany victims or should we say survivors to court or when advocating on their behalf, what would be three best practices in general to kind of keep in mind as you go about the process of being of service and being a service to them during this probably, which is one of the most darkest and most difficult times in their life? How do you go about what would be three best practices to keep in mind? Well, I got one best practice. I refer them to our victim advocates. Those are the people that have all the resources. Being a criminal investigator, you know, we have to be in the field and we meet with victims, offenders, uh, household members, all that stuff. So it's important that we kind of convey our empathy, you know, convey our service to them in their time of darkness. As you stated, just, you know, being human, man, just being human, yeah. listening to them, telling them what their options are, providing them with those resources, and then kind of walking them down that uh, oftentimes lonely road. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ben, looking back, share with us maybe one or two cases that come to mind that were big cases or high profile for the Summit County Prosecutor's Office that you were directly involved in while on the job. Wow. Okay. Well, there's some that I can speak of and some that I can't. So, you know, having been an investigator there for for seven, almost eight years, I've pretty much conducted every type of investigation that there is. I know we didn't speak of this before, but in addition to the cases that come through the police department, through the direct indictment process, my unit, when I say my unit, I mean myself and my partner, my other criminal investigator, we were specifically assigned special investigations, and that was typically, it could have been, it could be a high-profile case, it could be a sensitive case, it could be a case that, you know, the elected officials want us specifically to handle based upon our own skill sets or experience, so those are a lot of the investigations that I conducted, and those are typically very sensitive, high-profile, like I said. Hey, Ben, which types of cases hit home for you the most? and why so? Well, the ones that I can tell you that hit home the most were investigations involving children, you know, sex trafficking, human trafficking, those type of cases. I worked on the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force uh, for a few years, assisted as kind of a support investigator, um, and I can tell you that working those cases were extremely personal to me, having kids myself that were kind of in the toddler, the older range. So just seeing the images, seeing the videos, seeing the just the evilness of, of, of what goes on in the world of human trafficking and sex trafficking and child trafficking really really hit home for me it, it is a, it is very unfortunate that these things occur but there is an absolute need for more resources more officers more task force because there's a lot of it that go unnoticed go uninvestigated and they're not even known it's you know kind of under the radar but those definitely hit home for me and my personal experience in it i i did it for a little bit and then i decided to stop because it was too personal to me it got to be where i'm looking at you know i'm seeing my kids faces on these kids faces so that's something that i was glad to be a part of i 
cases where I helped, I was able to help victims, children, but those are very difficult cases for me personally to work. So I'd say those are the ones that would, that hit home the most. I see. Certainly. Absolutely. You know, in general, in your personal opinion, what happens to the pursuit of justice when politics are mixed into that process? <laughs> I don't know if you want my answer, Phil. I really don't know if you want my answer. Well, give us a give it a shot. Let's let's see what uh, Ben has to say on this. Ben speaks. Well, hey, let, let's uh, let's just say this: there's always politics in the pursuit of justice, one way or the other. It is unfortunate, but it is also could be very helpful at times. I'm not going to say it's 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 bad or good because it, it, it happens. It's there. It's reality. Um, unfortunately, if it becomes political, as we are kind of seeing unfold before our very eyes today, with some of the things going on in the hill. Some of the things going on with our own politics, federally speaking, it could definitely it could definitely throw a wrench in the spokes of a true, factually based investigation. In my opinion, in my professional experience, politics should not be part of criminal investigations. Period. Absolutely, I I agree one hundred percent. For as long as I can remember, Ben, in the neighborhoods in Akron, it's very rare to see a police officer. Maybe driving through, maybe driving through in route to another location. But what do you think about Akron's policing strategy, where the officers still chase? calls and have no regular presence in the neighborhoods, including high crime neighborhoods. Hey man, you know, just like Akron, just like Summit County, it's the, it's the nature of the beast. You know, I'll say that that I don't know how long it's been since you've been in Akron. I know that Akron Police Department is very proactive in community policing. You know, I've worked with some of these community police officers assigned to certain districts or certain sections in the neighborhoods who are there specifically for community relations so that community could then relay to that officer some of the issues or concerns or crimes occurring who could then refer the case either to their detective bureau or us as criminal investigators as working for the county. Now, having said that, we can't have officers in every single area of every single neighborhood, especially nowadays. The manpower is extremely low. The budgets have been cut. Some budgets have been eliminated, um, making it even worse. In my experience working in Summit County in, in Akron, I've observed and I've seen a lot of good things happening with community policing. So I think that they are, their intentions are very proactive in trying to make that connection between members of the community and the police department and kind of having that open relationship where you know one side is not different from the other. You know, Mainly, we want to work together as a community and combating crime, addressing issues, making neighborhoods safer. And I think that that Akron police specifically is, is proactive in doing so. Um, it sounds like that might have changed since since your day, but they're, they're heads in the right spot. I don't think their budgets are all jacked up at this point. Yeah. I see. Let's talk a little bit about the criminological theory of the broken windows theory, which is often talked about in criminal justice, criminal justice theory and process. So the broken windows theory is for our listeners. It's a criminological theory that states that visible signs of crime like antisocial behavior and civil disorder create an urban environment that encourages further crime and disorder, including serious crime. Now, this was introduced in a 1982 article by social scientists James Q. Wilson and George L. Kelling, and the theory suggests that policing methods that target minor crimes such as vandalism, loitering, things like public drinking, jaywalking, walking and maybe fare evasion if you're talking about bus fare train fares things like that help to create an atmosphere of order and lawfulness what are your thoughts as to the validity of the broken windows theory and to piggyback on that do you know of any place in summit county that adopted it and if so how did that play out you know i i'm, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to understand and try to explain theories but but i can say this you know there's theories and then there's reality and i live in reality. You know, having going and obtained my degree in criminal justice on, on a few different levels, I, I, I always like hearing these theories. I'm very familiar with the broken windows theory. I think that that can apply well in some jurisdictions and not well in others because of the reality of the circumstances and the reality of the culture of which that theory is being applied to. So not to get all philosophical on you, Phil, mm-hmm. but <laughs> in my reality, that differs from the broken windows theory in some ways, and it's the same in others. And okay. it just depends, like I said, said on specific areas um you know i don't know if that makes sense or not in regards to the broken window theory i think it, it's twofold you know you have the broken window or, or, or the busted outdoor and that leads to more and it, and it makes people think that that's normal and then and, you know if they can keep going on that you know that is a lot that's okay in that area so their window can be broken too however you want to explain the theory but i think it also encourages you know if there's a lot of crime in a particular area and not a lot of policing not a lot of community policing i think that encourages other potential offenders tells them that it's okay 
way. So uh, in a way, I, I see the point. I understand the broken windows theory, but in other ways, I don't. But you might want to bring a, someone uh, someone better on that could, that could further explain that because I live in reality. I don't I don't live in theory. Do you think at all that it's been adopted in any way, shape, or form in Summit County with the police department? Do you think that the broken windows theory has been adopted at all? You know, Phil, I, I, I don't know. I can't tell you one way or the other. I, okay. I've never worked for Akron Police. I know that most of the agencies, well, all of the agencies, are highly involved in community policing, you know, and not having the standard of, you know, some of the, the stop and frisk policies and the zero tolerance policies where officers can use discretion. You know, if you see someone jaywalking, you're not going to use your discretion. Don't inflate the situation that, that you can minimize or prevent just because someone's committing a very minor crime. But I would say that Summit County and Akron Police are very proactive in community policing, and that is an open relationship back and forth working together and not specifically specific to the broken windows theory, okay. if that makes sense. It does, absolutely. I think we can agree that it isn't proper to convict the innocent nor acquit the guilty. Have you ever felt like the outcome in the criminal justice system failed a person or that justice wasn't served? And how did you manage and cope with those feelings? You know, Phil, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that because I, I have many, many examples and I can I can go on all day about it. But, you know, I'll kind of let that bleed into what I, what I currently do as an investigator. So my primary services in current day is I conduct pretrial investigations and post-conviction investigations. So pretrial would be someone that has not gone to trial yet, obviously. Someone that's in the process of the pretrial hearings and negotiations between the defense attorney and the prosecutors. So I would then conduct a parallel investigation to the law enforcement investigation to confirm evidence, to obtain new evidence, to make sure the evidence is, is being interpreted properly. And then that evidence in my reports are submitted to the attorneys to present as exhibits and decided that to ensure that the correct charge is applied and the correct conviction is applied specific to what the evidence says. Most of my cases are post-conviction cases where people have already gone through this process. They've already gone to trial. They've already been convicted. So when I come in on the backside of this, my job is to review and obtain all of the discovery that includes all of the initial police reports, all of the evidence, all of the lab reports, all of the procedural events that occurred in the courts, and everything in between. Given my experience in working for the state building cases, this allows me to kind of peel away the layers of the investigation, peel away the layers of the prosecution, and make sure that it was done properly, make sure the evidence was interpreted properly. And in a lot of cases, they're not. Most of my cases are cases of actual innocence. And it's, it's become very surprising to me, coming from the public sector and now in the private sector, seeing how some of these cases were prosecuted mm -hmm. or maliciously prosecuted or cases of actual innocence was ignored based upon the facts of the case and the evidence. So I can I can give examples of some of those cases. I can give examples of cases that I've won, cases that I still have in the courts. But I think the most surprising thing to me is that I, I, am not, I cannot believe some of these cases, having worked for a prosecuting attorney's office where none of the prosecutors I work with nor myself would take a case improperly and apply evidence or not disclose exculpatory evidence just to get a conviction. I see. Wow, that's that's interesting. Really, it is. On the prosecutor's office's YouTube page, they have a video of the prosecutor's investigators at the gun range. That's what it's titled. It's actually a pretty good video. I watched it. Oh, boy, where'd you find that? <laughs> and you are featured in this video. Now, yes, I imagine... Sir, I yes, sir, I am. I imagine you have to qualify with your service weapon with both hands, correct? And follow up on that. How long did it take for you to be such a great shot with your less dominant hand? Well, what the video didn't show is the actual target. It showed me shooting. <laughs> who knows where that lead went down? Uh, I'm, I'm joking. It's it's like everything, you know. You have the standards of, of your peace officer commission requires that you that you qualify once, and in some cases twice per year, mm -hmm. depending on what agency you work for. They they you go to the range a certain you know, monthly, weekly, every other month. Obviously, the more you can get down to the range, the better. It's one of those skill sets that if you're not using it, you're going to lose it. You know, I've been serving 10 years in the military and 10 years in law enforcement. I've been around firearms my entire life. I, I've, I've been taught how to shoot from a very young age. So, although those videos look pretty, I certainly would not want to use my left hand mm -hmm. to deploy my service weapon if need be. Let's just say that. No, fair enough. Fair enough. You would know best. You would know best about that. As a lightning-fast public service, 
service announcement. You mentioned that you've been around firearms your entire life. Can you provide for our listeners a brief gun handling safety bulleted list of how to handle a firearm safely? Yeah, sure. First off, don't, don't shoot anyone, right? <laughs> um, always assume the firearm is loaded. Always. If you assume that the firearm is loaded, then you take the, the proper precautions and making sure that if that firearm were to discharge, it's not going to be discharged in an area that can hurt someone or something. You always want to have uh, a good barrel direction, you know, safe direction with your barrel. Always have it downrange, always have it on the ground unless unless you're aiming at your intended target. You know, obviously, you got to have trigger discipline um, and, I, and I practice that with everything. You know, when I grab a firearm, my, my right pointer finger never is never on the trigger. It's only on the trigger when I'm ready to dispatch or deploy that, that round and I practice that with, with drills and everything else that kind of looks like a gun but, uh, you know, kind of has that grip that a firearm would mm-hmm. and it's just muscle memory. Trigger, trigger controls is one of the most one of the most important things for arm safety, um, in my opinion. Well, when you're shooting, always have two hands on your firearm. You know, you need you need as much support as you can. Practice, man. Practice, practice, practice. If you don't use it, you're going to lose it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, have the firearm unloaded when you're not using it. When you're cleaning it, make sure it's unloaded. Have someone do a safety check on it. Rack it back several times, visually inspect, ask your partner to visually inspect, make sure that gun is not loaded. Yeah. Um, you know, and when you're shooting, have your eye protection. Use the right ammo. You know, using the wrong ammo, the wrong caliber is going to not, not fare well for sure. yourself or the, that intended target, per se. Sure. Clear your barrel. Make sure your weapon is clean, operable. All those good things. Absolutely. No, excellent. Excellent advice. Excellent information. Now, looking back a little bit, because I know I know Summit County was a hotbed for meth production. There was a time when, uh, did your office see, and you don't have to get into detail at all. You can maybe just answer yes or no. Did your office see a lot of cases regarding meth labs, meth use, and meth sales? Oh, man, Phil, every office in, in Ohio saw a lot of those cases come down. Meth is, is destroying our country as we speak, um, especially in a lot of rural areas. You know, for as cheap as it is and as easily accessible as it is, you know, our office handled a lot of drug-related cases, especially specific to meth. So, yeah, that's definitely something that, that was very, very common to see in Summit County and, and I would say likely in all counties in Ohio. Yeah, absolutely. That's not surprising. Ohio, a lot of, a lot of counties in Ohio have suffered tremendously with that problem. <laughs> as well as other places. Was there a particular crime that was more heavily violated than any other while you served as chief investigator in general? I mean, a lot of drug activity. We had a lot of human trafficking just because of our geographical location. Uh, lots of domestic violence cases, lots of assault cases, uh, a lot of shooting cases. You know, it's Akron. You know, there's a little bit of a lot in Summit County, given that some areas are rural, some areas are, you know, kind of metropolitan. So uh, it's definitely a blend of many, many different types of, of crimes in Summit County. No, absolutely. From working deep inside the criminal justice system at the highest levels within the city government, as you have, can you share with us from your deep insight how can the public help facilitate better relations with law enforcement versus the traditional concept of law enforcement needing to facilitate better relations with the public or will that always solely be the responsibility of law enforcement as they are the civil servants what are your thoughts on that yeah so like i said before i think it's a two-way street there's certain events and certain things that law enforcement officers law enforcement agencies do such as you know your uh, your neighborhood watch your community policing your school resource officers, a lot of different uh, events throughout the year, such as National Night Out, which I participated in um, almost every year in Summit County. And what that is, is that you have law enforcement that's out in almost every jurisdiction at the libraries or at board of elections, or, you know, in some cases, the city blocks are blocked off, or you have kind of a community party along with the police there with their equipment. You know, those are good platforms for police to educate their community on the resources they have with the police departments, um, as well as, as getting to know each other, you know. Uh, police police officers are human, just like just like the community that they serve. I think that if we continue to communicate and continue to uh, work together as a community, as one, you know, not not as a community versus police, and police versus community. And I think in a lot of areas that's already been being done. So I think that's the best way to come together and focus on on things that are important to that particular community and the police to which they serve. No, absolutely, I agree. How do you think cities can go about working towards shifting their efforts from investigation to crime? control and prevention. I, I think 
think one of the best ways is kind of what we just described there, you know, community policing, you know, these events get involved, you know, there's a lot of presentations that are, that are put out, I've done a lot myself, you know, the public can educate themselves more on, on what resources are available to them through police agencies, and it's not always, well, being a police officer or a law enforcement agency is not always arresting and charging bad guys, it's, it's a service, you know, it's a service that we provide, that law enforcement agencies provide to help the citizens, whether it be a crime that's occurred or an emergency, you know, or anything in between. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, how important do you think is the first officer on the scene of a crime as far as protecting and preserving the evidence for trial? Crucial, absolutely crucial. That that first responder, that first officer on scene, their job is to secure the area. That way nothing is removed, nothing is touched. That way when the investigators or the um, forensic criminal investigators get there, the crime scene gets there. That way everything is in, is in its original state. Nothing's been disturbed. And that way the investigators could go in and document and record exactly what the evidence is that's there or uh, certain things that are related to the evidence to help solve the crime. I agree 100%. That's a crucial part in the entire process. Crucial step, crucial role to have that officer on scene and to protect and preserve that crime scene for further processing. In your opinion, Ben, do do you think that the rule of law, do you think it strengthens us or constrains us in the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone? Oh, boy. Well, if you had asked me this question last year, I probably would have had a different answer to it. I think that the appropriate laws that we have in place are there to protect our rights, protect our liberties, allow us to have the pursuit of happiness. Obviously, if, if you're if you're going to commit crimes, if you're not going to stay within the rules of law, you can obviously be criminally charged and those life, liberty, and happiness can be taken away from you. So I think the intention of having those laws are to protect us as community members to ensure that we have those, those rights available to us. You know, in its original state, I think, like I said, I think that the laws that we have are there to protect our rights. I don't think that prevents us from the pursuit of those rights either when applied correctly. Yeah, absolutely. How, in your opinion, can an investigator continuously improve the skills and processes needed to anticipate and meet the ever-evolving challenges that we face in order to try to stay safe and to stay one step ahead of the criminal element? Training, 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 Phil. Mm -hmm. That's all I can say about that. You got to continuously train. You got to look at what's the new stuff coming out. You got to be in tune with technology. You got to be able to use that technology to help you in your investigations, help you collect evidence. I mean, there's a lot of great tools that technology offers, but if you're not continually training on best methods of, of criminal investigative techniques and or that technology, then you're, you're really losing out on those resources that are available that are ever-changing to assist in that particular investigation. No, absolutely. I agree. Training, training, training. It's key. It's uh, constant education to keep evolving. Those are crucial aspects to growth. Absolutely. <laughs> on a lighthearted note here, who would be your favorite TV investigator or your favorite TV crime show? Oh, come on, Phil. Magnum P.I., boss. <laughs> okay. Okay. Magnum. Magnum. Only because of the shorts, though. <laughs> oh, man. All right. You know, it's, it's funny you ask that question because I'm going to tell you that the most realistic investigative TV show that I can apply to reality and that has that just simply uses common sense is Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Scooby-Doo, man. It's so true. They identify the facts, they collect the evidence, and they follow the leads that are offered by that evidence, and it always results in solving the crime <laughs> right uh, yeah now that you mentioned it and i think back okay yeah good points there exactly <laughs> i haven't given much thought to scooby-doo but uh hey you got a point there ben absolutely keep it simple exactly keep it simple as we get ready to round third base and head for home we only have a few more questions for you here on the witness stand and we appreciate all your time for sure as the chief criminal investigator with Summit County, with the prosecutor's office, and as a private investigator currently, you know, share with us a little bit, how much did you enjoy and how much do you enjoy, like, for example, speaking to community groups, block clubs, or schools on specific crime issues? I enjoy public speaking. I'm not the greatest speaker. I stumble upon my words. I forget what I'm going to say. I lose track. But at the end, I kind of pull it together. So, um, you know, having these particular skills sets and experience and having seen some of the horrific things that I've seen um, that allows me to, to speak to the general public, to speak to a specific audience group, to showcase some of those some of those experiences and whether it be helping them to protect themselves, helping them protect themselves from other people, or, or just wanting to get in the investigative line of work. I speak to a lot of, a lot of college classes, a lot of high school classes. Um, you know, obviously, as we spoke before, they, everyone says they want to join the FBI or, or 
U.S. Marshals Services, but there's a whole lot of other investigative-type units and agencies out there, so I always like sharing that information, and I'm sure your listeners would probably love to learn more about other options and other opportunities, but yeah, I, I enjoy public speaking, I enjoy sharing information, and ultimately, you know, making the world a better place. No, absolutely, absolutely. You absolutely do. Your professionalism is beyond reproach, and what's exciting and new and on the horizon for uh, True Source Investigations? Yeah, so we're up and running, and I know that you and I met early on when I kind of entered into the private sector, and it took a little bit to kind of figure out, you know, what my bread and butter was going to be, which service that would best fit the community or the clients to which I serve. You know, and as I mentioned before, I'm, 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 I've dug deep into the pretrial, post-conviction type investigations. You know, there's a lot, a lot to be offered in those investigations, a lot of things that, that people are not aware of. So I'm excited to, to expand upon those services and offer my investigative services to offenders, people that are convicted, people that are charged with crimes um, that don't necessarily meet the threshold of the evidence collected. So I know it might sound, you know, depressing to some people, but that's exciting to me. You know, this is this is an opportunity to where I can take what I've learned and the experience I've acquired working for a prosecuting attorney's office, working as a criminal investigator, working as a police officer, and apply that to the private sector, given the experience I have and able to provide defense investigations, be able to provide and collect evidence for attorneys who request my services, and, and all those things result in good things when utilizing evidence in the correct way. Absolutely. Hey, we've been talking with Ben Bergeron. He is an established, veteran-owned, small business owner, registered with the Ohio Department of Public Safety and Private Investigator and Security Guard Services. And his company, True Source Investigations, is federally certified as a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business and a veteran-friendly business enterprise in the state of Ohio. Ben is certified as a master criminal investigator by the authority of the Ohio Peace Officers Training Academy and has over 10 years of law enforcement experience. Additionally, Ben served in the U.S. Navy, including four combat tours in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom and is the recipient of the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal and Navy Commendation Medal. He also is the recipient of the Law Enforcement Lifesaver Medal awarded by the Summit County Sheriff's Office, where he currently maintains a special deputy commission. Ben, it has been our pleasure to talk with you, for you to share your skills, talents, and abilities with us and with our listeners. We're tremendously grateful, and like we always try to do, we always like to leave our special guest with the final word. So if you would wrap things up, summarize things for us, and take us out, we want you to know you always will have a home here on Light Em Up with our Criminal Justice Podcast. So thanks again for your time. Hey, I appreciate that, Bill. That was uh, that was quite the words there. I um, hope I can keep living up to them, right? <laughs> yeah, so I, I thank you for giving me this opportunity to kind of speak on this line of work, you know, whether it be the public sector, the private sector, it's always exciting to me, learning new things and, and conducting investigations. They are, every case is different. That's kind of why I love doing it. You know, I'm more than happy to, to speak with or, or meet with or provide any additional information to any of your listeners that's, uh, you know, maybe interested in getting into the public sector or deciding whether the public sector or the private sector is right for them. You know, I've, I've had a lot of interns in my time that started off wanting to be attorneys and that kind of changed their mind and they're now great investigators. So, <laughs> always happy to hear my knowledge and, uh, you know, hopefully create more great investigators out there.